Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, where Tulane Stadium opened 92 years ago on October 23, 1926, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas, home of the annual World Cheese Dip Championship. Thank you for joining us tonight for Episode 26. State of California versus Elizabeth Ann Broderick. During a contentious and protracted divorce from her husband of 16 years, Daniel Broderick, Betty Broderick went off the rails. She vandalized his home several times, violated restraining orders by entering his home and leaving vulgar messages on his answering machine, and claimed to be the victim of domestic abuse and a conspiracy against her by the legal community in San Diego, California. At around 5.30 a.m. on November 5, 1989, Betty used her daughter's keys to enter the home shared by Dan and his wife of seven months, Linda Broderick. Dan and Linda were asleep when Betty opened fire, which killed both of them. Tonight, we're joined by Sharon Blanchett, a California family law attorney and a friend of Dan and Linda Broderick. Ms. Blanchett is a certified family law specialist who brings a voice of reason and create a solution to the charged atmosphere surrounding divorce. She's a founding partner of ABC Family Law with 32 years of family law experience. Since 2006, Ms. Blanchett has been a fellow in the highly regarded American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers, Southern California chapter, and she served as the chapter's board on the board of directors from 2006 to 2012. She's also served as chapter president in 2010. Ms. Blanchett was dean of AAML's highly regarded three-day trial institute in 2006 and in 2018, and she's also a member of the International Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers. As always, this is a live show, and calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-91171. And good evening, Michael and Ms. Blanchett. Please call me Sharon. Uh, Sharon. I can tell you, I, I'm from Lafayette, Louisiana. <laughs> oh, so I could have said your name Blanchet, and you would have. It's, yeah, it's Blanchet. Like home. Is what we, yes, exactly. Blanchet. <laughs> yes. I've had just so me many Michael. people. I'm from Arkansas. 
<laughs> well, my father, my father uh, settled in Hot Springs, Arkansas, so I, I have gone to Arkansas and like it very much on oh a number my... of occasions. <laughs> oh, and yeah, see, okay. I We're thought you were a California. I thought but you were a California girl through and through. Well, I've been here many, many years, <laughs> but I like my Louisiana roots. I tell you. Mhm. Mhm. All right. So we are talking tonight about Betty Broderick. Yes. The tragedy, and, um, I say. The, the tragedy of a woman off the rails. Yes, and what, she did to a, and what she did to a family. Mm-hmm. Yes, including her own children that she claimed to love more than life itself. So uh, let's start. Betty was born in New York in 1947. Her father was a uh, building contractor, I believe. I believe so. And so they were they were a well, relatively wealthy family. An interesting thing, her mother was very demanding and very difficult. She's made yeah. allegations of abuse by her mother. <clears throat> and oddly enough, she actually emulated a lot of her mother's behavior. Uh yes, she during did. During the course of her during the course of her marriage with Dan but she was not married to a man like her father who was going to coddle and appease her. She was married to somebody who didn't have time for her dramatics. Well, I think Dan did appease her for many years because she yeah. was not that stable right from the very beginning of their marriage. Uh, but as time went on and he became more and more successful, uh, which was very good for the family, he didn't have as much time as he did maybe in the early parts of their marriage. Right. And I think a lot of the time he spent away from home was well, you know, to, when you're, uh, <laughs> to a degree. Yeah, well, you know, Dan was not only a lawyer, but he also had his uh, MD. And MD, he, correct. Yes, and he was a partner at a very successful law firm in San Diego and then went out on his own and had a very successful plaintiff's practice, which mm-hmm. is a very demanding area of the law. And so he he was he was working very hard. He was not out playing. Uh, he didn't golf. I mean, he wasn't the kind of guy who was gone playing sports all the time. He was working, and then he was with his Correct. family. Yes. Correct. I, I I work with plaintiff firms. Oh well, then you know. And I've I I've worked in plaintiff and defense firms. And another thing that I know is attorneys who are in happy marriages do not go out and socialize a lot with people from work. Mm-hmm. And that's one of, of course, you know, Betty's complaints about a lot of it are, are probably exaggerated. But she claimed at one time that, you know, when they moved to San Diego, he was at the uh, Irish pubs that he helped get off the well, ground Well, there was and things a, like that, which is... There was a group, no, nothing. Um, th- this is, I mean, I'm very familiar with all of the people that she's talking about. Um, there was a group of peop- of young attorneys starting off together. San Diego was mm-hmm. a very small town back in the late 70s and early 80s. And these bo- men were friends and they had, they were, they were support, you know, supported each other in their, in their cases and, and they were they were fun guys, and they did mm-hmm. a lot of socializing. But the wives were part of that as well. Right, right. 
So, and then Dan Broderick was from a family in Pittsburgh, and he was the oldest of, I think, nine. There were, I don't remember how many children there were, but there, uh, he was very close. I knew his brother Larry, who he was very close to his yeah. brother Larry. Yes. So yeah. I don't know that he had nine children, but I know there were a number of children. So you probably have that and, right. And, <laughs> and another interesting thing about um, his family is his grandfather had emigrated to the United States, and then his father was the first to go to college. Isn't that amazing? And look at how accomplished Dan ended up being. And then all of his brothers and sisters also went to college. Yes, they're very accomplished. So uh, his father was very was very successful. Uh, he was in the military as well prior to I think they had a lumber business in Pittsburgh. Yeah, I don't I don't know that. I do know that Dan and Betty were never really in the same town during their courting. You know. Yeah, she was in another school and in college, and he was in another. So, so they never spent a whole lot of time together prior to their marriage. Yeah, I think when he went to New York for Cornell Medical School, uh, she was in New York because she was going to school in at uh, Mount Saint Vincent's, which is a Catholic women's college Mm -hmm. in the New York City area uh, near Bronxville, I guess where she grew I, up. Uh, I think that he was still in medical school when they got married, wasn't he? Uh, he I think he was finishing medical school at Cornell. Uh-huh. And uh, shortly after, I think he graduated shortly after Kim was born and then went to Harvard Law School. Yeah. Because Lee was born at Harvard when they were at Harvard Law School in 71 or 72. He was very, very smart, and he was a really they, good yeah. guy. He was really a good he, guy. Yeah. Good guy. He, yes. Everything I've read about him, I mean, he seems to be, seems to have been very smart, very driven, very type A personality. But attorneys are mostly type A personality. Yeah. But when you were around <laughs> him, you know, uh, he was not an arrogant kind of person. Uh, when you, mm-hmm. he was very easy to be around. He was very, he was very nice to everyone. When yes. I was around him, he, I mean, as I observed, he was a very nice. Uh, he was very good looking. I mean, he's a guy that could have been one of these that would be very unapproachable, mm-hmm. and you know, mm-hmm. would, but he was not that way at all. Right. And one of the things I noticed, and I I downloaded Betty's book, telling it on myself. And there are a lot of pictures in there. And, you know, one of the things I noticed is when he was married to Betty, neither of them smiled in a lot of the <laughs> photographs in the last three or four years. They, I mean, neither of them smiled in any of the photographs. They both looked angry. Unhappy. Yeah, they were. Unhappy. <laughs> they were. And okay. then when you see all the pictures of Dan with Linda, Mm-hmm. It's like his face lit up, and he he did he got better looking. Well, Linda was a joy to be around. (laughs) She seems like it. Now she was uh, Linda Coquina. Now was she born in Utah? I think so. Um, Some of her family is still there, and her sister Maggie is in uh, the northern part of the country. Uh, She has a wonderful family. Uh, She came from a very loving family. She was. 
Linda was a very loving, uh, funny, funny, funny uh, person. Mm -hmm. And again, this beautiful woman, uh, very smart. She was very smart. Um, And I think that she just lit Dan's life up. Right. Right. Yeah. That's the impression that I that I got as well. And yeah. her parents were immigrants from Holland. Yes. Who came to the United States and and all were all of their children born in the States or, or did they come over with older children? You know, I don't there's not a lot I, of information about you know Well, you know about I, her I, background. I know her brother and her sister. I just don't know I don't I believe they were all born in the United States. That's, uh, that's okay. not something that was ever discussed, so I don't know the answer to that. Okay. It, it, but they were possible. lovely, Her lovely. parents could have each emigrated and then met after they came to the U.S. Could, I, mean, I don't um, know. By the time I, so. when I met Linda, I, I think her mother had already passed away. Yes. Her mother died when she was very young. Yes. From so, breast cancer. Yeah, I, so I didn't know her um, mother. I only knew her father. Right, and uh, so, but that, but that was a, they were a very hardworking middle class, very family. good family, very close, uh, family. very good, right. And yeah. um, the the other thing that you know, Betty likes to say, oh, she was you know nineteen, but she was actually twenty one when she met Dan. Yeah, twenty two. She was around twenty one, twenty two. Uh, she didn't have a college degree, but she was already a paralegal. She had Did she have stewardess? some kind of certification or worked, you know, work uh, they experience? Didn't, they, or... didn't have certi- they didn't have certifications at that time. Uh, and she had already yeah. been a stewardess. She had been a, a flight attendant. Correct. And she was working um, at in San Diego at the time. They had uh, something called Fijian Suites where you had – a group of attorneys that had their own firms mm-hmm. on a floor, and then there was a central location, and she she was in charge of the central location. Mm-hmm. So, so that's what she did. And I also know from experience when I wanted to start working in the legal, you know, field, um, you have to either know someone <laughs> who's willing yeah. to take a chance on you, mm-hmm. or you have to, you know, start at the bottom, start working as a receptionist, at a firm, and then work your way up. Mm -hmm. So the fact that Linda was a receptionist in Dan's building is not unusual, especially if she was relatively new to San Diego. Correct. That's Um, exactly right. It's not any indication of her her abilities or how smart she was, because she was very smart. She had a lot of ability, so... I don't. I don't have a college degree, but I've worked I, as a paralegal for nearly twenty years. I don't have a college degree, and I'm an attorney of thirty-two years. So. <laughs> oh, my mother was always looking for a way to do that. Um, in this California, can you go to law school without a bachelor's degree? Uh, well, in California, there was a way to to do it in that um, there were California accredited schools. And because I had worked in the court system as a court clerk for many oh. years, and because I scored a certain level on the LSAT and got recommendations, I was able to go to law school for one year. And then I had to take a baby bar. And if I passed the baby bar in criminal uh, torts and contracts, then I could go on to the second and third year. And so there were a number of us who did that. 
Oh, wow. See, my mother was always looking for a way because mm-hmm. she was also a legal assistant paralegal uh, with plaintiff's personal injury lawyers. Uh-huh. And she was very good, very bright, knew what she was doing, could research better than attorneys could, mm-hmm. and write yeah. better than the attorneys. Well, um, and she, she wanted, here. she desperately <laughs> wanted to go to law school, but had not finished her bachelor's degree. I don't like Betty looking down her nose on people who, by circumstances, for whatever reason, could not finish a bachelor's degree. Exactly. And there are a lot of us out there like that. Oh, right. Well, um, yeah. You know, we didn't school, have the luxury school. of mommy and daddy paying for college. Right. Until we graduated. Mm-hmm. So um, that's one of my other things is a college degree does not equal intelligence. You are so correct. A law degree doesn't even <laughs> equal intelligence. I don't know how some of the no. people are past, that are practicing law pass the bar, frankly. <laughs> they don't have any common sense. <laughs> right. So um, yeah. yeah so. so that was uh, something. So I, I do. I, I, I really, it infuriates me when she says things like that about Linda. So Linda was some dumb bimbo yeah, she when not. she was the opposite. She was. Um, she now, could entertain she, a group. I mean, she, Linda was very clever and smart and very funny. And she could mm-hmm. entertain us and keep us in stitches, and she was exceedingly thoughtful and kind. Yeah. So, so it is, and it's it's very wrong that, yes. you know, Betty's the only one telling the story. Uh, and so tragic. Dan and Linda are portrayed as, you know, villains when they weren't. They were not. They were not villains. Oh. Uh, Betty... I, you know, I forget what the amount of spousal support Betty was getting at the time, but it was some astronomical figure Six, between sixteen sixteen thousand one hundred dollars per month, um, and that was back in um, the nineteen 80s. yeah nineteen eighty. I think that went into effect in nineteen eighty nine, right. Or probably in effect around eighty eight during mm-hmm. the course during, yes. of the divorce proceeding, and then when the when the final uh, financial settlement was made, uh, that's when it was sixteen hundred thousand one hundred dollars per month. I think it was only going to be about a year, because I think another thing, another misconception that Betty had and that a lot of people have. Alimony is not meant to keep a woman in the style to which she has become accustomed. Well, in California, for the it remainder is. of her life. <laughs> well, it depends. Oh, it is. Oh, yeah. In California, <laughs> she was. They had a marriage of a long duration, and I haven't looked at any of the the judgment pleadings in a really long time <laughs> or thought about this. But I was not aware. I mean, you may have more recently than I that her spousal support was supposed to terminate. Uh, so I I don't think there was anything about the spousal support terminating anytime soon, and of course the children were going to go and live with Betty. And that by that by the children I mean the two boys. So Dan right. would have been paying her child support, in addition to the right. spousal support. Yeah. So she but, was fine. You know, again, I I think well, a part of the problem was she she wanted to continue shopping and continue spending money. And not budgeting herself. And so the reason that she could never pay her bills was not that Dan wasn't giving her enough money to do so. 
it's that she was spending money on clothes mm-hmm. and ordering things from catalogs that stayed in her house when she was arrested for Dan and Linda's murder. Her friends found clothing in her house with all the tags still on. Yeah. Clothing she couldn't have even worn at that time. No, because she had gained a lot of weight. So, so, so that was, you know, Dan, Betty had a lot of problems. Betty had a lot of problems. And, you know, <laughs> she one did. of them is being a shopaholic. Right. Well, that's and, not uncommon for women going through a divorce. I'm a divorce attorney, mm-hmm. so I run into this. And it's not uncommon for women who have not managed the finances then to not know how to manage the support that they get after they get separated. And so Betty was just out of control in many different ways. Yes. Yeah. And and I think, though, she she was in control. She could have stopped. Well, she, she could have, have stopped the messages. Oh, had yes, she stopped absolutely. the messages, yes. the orders to show cause would have stopped. That's the other thing. She portrays it as though Dan would do something and then she would vandalize his house. But, you know, the, the divorce action he filed the day after she smeared a Boston cream pie all over his bedroom mm-hmm. and his clothing. Yeah. And that was minor and, and compared she, to what she ended up doing later on. She. She's incredibly, has absolutely no insight into cause and effect. She burned his clothes were, at one point. I mean. That was, was, that was on his 39th birthday mm-hmm. when she, she was suspecting an affair with Linda. I tend to believe that Dan and Linda probably did not really start a relationship until after they were separated. More likely than not until after he actually filed for divorce. Um, I don't believe that at that time there was a real affair going on. I think they were working closely together and they were attracted to one another, but I don't think that they were really doing anything at I don't that know. point. I personally do not know because I never asked. I never wanted to know when that relationship right. started. Um, so all I, all I was witness to was when Betty and Dan were still together at a couple of social functions. And then after Betty and Dan separated, then we became much closer to Dan and extremely close to Linda. So, right. And, and that's uh, after they were separated. And she probably would have turned her, you know, her animosity on you. I'm surprised uh, she, she didn't. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well B- Betty has a lot of other people besides me that she would be very angry about besides me. Yeah. And I think she'd be yeah. very upset at all of the friends because they had a lot of friends, not just me. Um, and so and we we were very uh, protective of them, of Dan and Linda. Right. Yeah. Well, as, she, as you should be. And. You know, again, you're not gonna you're not gonna keep those friends when you uh, all you'd ever talk about is Dan doing you wrong, right? Uh, and that's the only thing you ever want to talk about. And then when they try to say, Betty, you need to move on. It's been this long, and you attack them. Of course, they're not gonna remain your friends, babe. And it was everybody. <laughs> I mean, we we actually shared the same dentist for a long time, and. I mean, she would even talk to the dentist. Uh, it was just mm-hmm. anybody, anybody that would listen mm-hmm. that is, you're correct, that's all that she seemed to talk about, which was so sad because she actually had a very nice boyfriend. Yeah. 
And she had a lot going for her, you know. She did. She's a smart woman. At, you know, and the way she, the way she speaks about Dan, uh, in her book and and to the the writers that have interviewed her, I mean, she was never happy from the day she was married. No. She described the honeymoon as being raped. Mm -hmm. Sweetie, you know, this was not for you. Well, he was not happy from the beginning either. What yeah, what makes me want you know, not understand how she would just keep hanging on to it to finally realize, hey, I'm I'm free. And another thing that aggravates me is the after the separation, one by one she drops each of the children off at dance. Mm-hmm. The man who she claims is an alcoholic, unfit parent. <laughs> and by the way, Dan was not then, an alcoholic. <laughs> but go ahead. No, no. Oh, no, not at all. No. Uh, not at all. And um, uh, and he wasn't an unfit parent. I mean, he had oh, God, to figure no. it out oh. to do. Oh, no. He, he was, uh, he was, a, he was a very loved his children very much and did his best. No. And, yeah, right. And so, um, and then she got angry when she doesn't show up to the divorce hearing and so she doesn't get custody of her kids back. Well, and then another, another bet, another example of Betty talking out of both sides of her mouth. She's also said many times, I never wanted to discuss custody until we had the financial settlement done. Well, one of the things that happens in San Diego or in California, I should say, when you go through a divorce and the parties, the, the husband and wife, or the parents, I should say, uh, don't have an agreement about how to co-parent and share the children, it's mandatory to go through some process with a mental health professional. There's different levels of that. Mm-hmm. And so they went through that process. And as they were going through that process, which takes a number of months, Betty's conduct caused the process to involve a lot more than what it normally would involve. And there was great concern about having the children with Betty because of Betty's um, frame of mind, her, her, her actions and so forth. So it was a really difficult situation in that would it be better to have Betty have the children? Would that calm her down? Or did we need to protect the children from Betty? And it was a very mm-hmm. difficult uh, kind of situ- – it was a difficult situation to maneuver and figure out what was best for the children. And what happened at the end, because it had been going on for so long, was that it, the, the girls were older. It was now the boys, and Betty was not getting any better. Things were getting worse. She was just continuing to cause – havoc in the phone calls and the, the vulgar language and on and on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you say vulgar language, you can say, oh, we'll just get over it. But when you have long messages that just go on and on and they're just horrific and it's constant, it's a problem. Correct. And, the children, and the children hear it. So Dan had decided Correct. that they would try having Betty have custody of the boys to see if that would calm her down. And that's when um, she killed them because she right. knew that was happening. And he and he had every right, I think something people don't understand. He had every right to uh have his attorney and her attorney work out parameters. 
Well, that's exactly what you do. Then yeah. that, that is if, the process. If this doesn't <laughs> stop, then the you know the, the she can't keep the kids if it doesn't stop. Right. That's not well, a threat. No, no, he's to her. He is consulting. But that's what she men- portrays it as. Well, I know, but at. he's consulting with mental health professionals all the way mm-hmm. to try to put as Correct. many safeguards in place for the children. Um, so he's not just doing this willy-nilly uh, or throwing mm-hmm. up his hands in the air and saying, okay, I've had enough. No, he's, he's seeking professional advice from people who are very well respected in San Diego in the mental health community and who know the case on how to handle the situation, and that's being worked right. out. Um, and that's when this happened. Yeah. And, again, this is, you know, it's not anything Dan and Linda did. It's Betty's perception of the world is so skewed Yeah. by her personality disorder that she sees everything as an attack on her. Right. It's a very narcissistic Even though way of looking it's at not. It no, you know, and I think another another thing is she turned a lot of that on the kids. If, well, they were when they, they were still were married. Upsetting. If Dan wasn't home and yeah. she was mad, she would yeah. take it out on the kids. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. And then there were two calls I think with Danny, one with Danny and one with Rhett, where she was cursing the kids out and oh yeah, just. You know, well, that's what I mean. That, that's what tears. all of all of those things were the considerations of. Do you let the kids go and live with her, given the past? Mm-hmm. You know, that that's what was all being weighed by the mental health professionals who were giving Dan the advice uh, mm-hmm. of what to do. And I mean, everybody was sort of. The bottom line is nobody could appease her, and when you have a person like that on the other side, you really don't know what to do. You try everything, and frequently nothing works. And in this case, right. that was one of those cases. And that's what's the tragedy. What, a- another aspect is Betty liked to move those goalposts. <laughs> the yeah. sale of the Coral Reef house. She yes. told Dan, the realtor, he got the realtor she wanted. Mm-hmm. They agreed on a price. They agreed on a minimum. Mm-hmm. But then when they got the first offer, she wouldn't respond. Right. So that buyer went away. Mm-hmm. Second offer, she refused. She said, no, a million dollars won't do it, not selling that house. I want to keep that house now. Yeah. And so then, you know, he goes, as he had every right and reason to do, he goes to the court and says, can you do something? And the court says, yeah, we can. Mm-hmm. And, oh, well, he went to the court knowing what they could do because he was very intelligent. And he figured out what they could do and well, sold it. Well, they know. Well, we know what we can do. I mean, his attorney, his (laughs) divorce attorney would know that when you have a situation where one person starts dragging their feet, the choice is, okay, if you want to buy him, if you want the house, Betty, you're going to have to pay him his share. And if she doesn't want to do that and she doesn't want to sell the house, then the court will order it sold. And that's what happened. Right. Well, I think what also happened in that was she got notice of that hearing and didn't show up thinking, if I'm not there, it's not going to happen. Yeah, see, very passive-aggressive. <laughs> and that you, you were married to an attorney for how many years, and you don't know that courts, if you're not there, it's going to happen anyway, and the other side's going to get exactly what they asked for. Frequently that happens. Sometimes the court, 
might continue it uh, if there's, you know, a, right. a problem. But in this particular case, this was not the first time where there was a problem. Uh, you know, there were yeah. many, there had been many problems with court hearings and Betty's behavior and so forth. Right. And um, she did have great, she did have two uh, or three really great attorneys. There was oh, one named Hargreaves, Dan Jaffe, and Trisha Smith. Well, oh, and well, uh, don't forget uh, she had, okay, so Dan, and all of these people I know, um, and then there was, uh, God, there's another one. Uh, and I can see his face. You know how you can see somebody's face, and I can't recall his <laughs> name. You can't remember his name. Oh my goodness, this is a sign of getting old, right? Uh, so she had at least four that I can think of. And by mm-hmm. the way, Dan Jaffe is a premier attorney out of Los Angeles. I know him very well. I've Correct. had cases against him, and he couldn't even um, make make it work Correct. with her. Um, and Trisha and that was. Is, Go ahead. That was something that, that uh, you know, she says, like, none of the attorneys in San Diego would represent her. Well, you know, because they knew Dan or Dan got to them that's and not, made them say no, no. That's not true. And that's not true. And I've never known a single attorney who was afraid of another attorney, even a president of the local bar association. No. no. I uh, have known attorneys no. who took cases because of the other attorney. Well, first of all, oh, it's that uh, guy. I hate him. Most <laughs> most attorneys uh, run in the circle of the kind of law that he or she practices. Mm-hmm. So, most divorce attorneys run in circles of divorce attorneys. Dan was a divorce plaintiff's attorney. lawyer. So that's civil. Correct. And so, most of his friends and the people that he knew uh, were not divorce attorneys. I became a divorce attorney while I knew him, and I was probably one of the few divorce attorneys. He even knew. Uh, so mm-hmm. the vast majority of the attorney divorce attorneys in San Diego didn't know Dan, and he didn't know them, and they could care less if he was a pres- had been president of the bar. It didn't right. matter. Exactly. It was a case with a lot of assets. It was a case where you would get paid as an attorney, which is what you certainly want to be done mm-hmm. is to be paid. So there would have been plenty of a- divorce attorneys in San Diego who would have taken her case that were very competent attorneys. So. Because we have a lot of competent divorce attorneys in San Diego. Right. And that was like, again, that's Betty's excuse. Mm-hmm. She yes. couldn't keep an attorney because of her behavior and so she blamed it on cause and appearing yes. in court. And so she blamed it on Dan. Dan, yes. Um, yes. And I believe Trisha Smith and Dan Jaffe actually testified at the criminal trial. You know, at least one I... of them. One of them might have. I only went to part of the. That that trial was very. Um, that was very hard on all of mm-hmm. Dan and Linda's friends because uh, the first trial, you know, ended in a um, in a hung jury, hung jury. Call, which was shocking because it was so clearly premeditated murder to all of us. I mean that that was like a slap. Uh, to Dan and Linda, mm-hmm. and and so the trial was very hard. Uh, Maggie was at the trial. I went one or two days uh, to the trial, but it was just too hard. It was just too hard to do. Yeah. So I don't remember if Dan. I'll have to ask Dan. I'm going to see him shortly if he testifies mm-hmm. at the trial. Trisha might have. Trisha's a very good attorney. She's a very good person. Um, so she had very good representation. Mm-hmm. She did, and she mm-hmm. just wouldn't cooperate. No. She wouldn't. wouldn't let them do their jobs because I Mm-mm. think the another 
another complaint she has about the financial settlement. She never had an attorney long enough to get an accountant to value anything or gather information about anything. She didn't know how to do that for herself. And so, you know, claiming, well, they relied on Dan's information, well, they that's all they had. Well, that, I mean, because well, you didn't you didn't allow your attorneys to do their jobs and represent you. I mean, years ago we had a, a client of the firm I was working for in a custody issue case. He would not listen to the attorney. Mm-hmm. He wanted to do what he wanted to do, mm-hmm. and so he was violating the custody orders. If he wanted the kid to go to dinner. That night, he would just go pick it up at school. Yeah, see. <laughs> and not call mom and say, Mom, I'd like to take the child to dinner. Is that okay with you? And it was that simple. But he wouldn't do it. It's my he child. Wouldn't. I'm going to do what I want to do. Yeah. And we ended up, you know, not being able to continue representing him because we were spending all of our time defending. Mending. Exactly. Contempt, contempt order. <laughs> Well, then, you know, there are there are judges and other lawyers who get divorced in San Diego, and they get representation in San Diego mm-hmm. all the time. So, I mean, Dan was mm-hmm. not the only ever attorney to get a divorce in San Diego. Right, right. So, so Again, I, you know, Betty's skewed perception of the world. Yes, that is exactly right. Um, <laughs> That's exactly right. I, I was watching interviews she did with Oprah, and another one uh-huh. I think was with, like, hard copy. Mm-hmm. And when she started saying, oh, well, you know, they're lying, he's lying, she's lying, they would lie to you, I'm like, okay, yeah, now I know who's lying. Because well, when know, everybody was, else is lying, <laughs> yeah, it's you. <laughs> well, the sad thing, in part, one of the very sad things, because there's many sad things about the case, was that what she would tell everybody and what her position was is that this was such horrible situation that the world needed to know and she was going to be on all mm-hmm. the television shows and she made that happen in the worst possible way uh, but right. she, she would talk about it constantly that that she was going to be on oprah she was going to be on all these shows because what was happening by what dan and linda did to her and then but i think i think what happened one of the things this uh two of the reporters from the san diego reader were trying to do a story about the divorce, and they interviewed Betty, and they got her side of the story. And then they found out that her side of the story was not <laughs> even closely related to fact. Uh-huh. Um, and and much of what they could find refuted everything she said. And so, and then they had they Dan sat down for an interview, but I think he was caught between a rock and a hard place. Yeah, he was trying to actually save Betty's reputation. Well, By not having her do... craziness appear in the San Diego Reader. Well, also, you have to remember the children could read the Reader, and their friends could read the Reader. So, I mean, Dan was always concerned about mm-hmm. the effect of all of this on the children and how public right. it was because he could handle it. He was prepared to handle it. But what about the children? So that was yeah. also a problem. I mean, I one of my most... Um, Chilling times was having dinner with Dan and Linda shortly after Betty drove her car 
just days, day or two after Betty drove the car through the house, and there was a knife under the seat. Under the seat, yeah. Yes, and so we said to Dan, well, perhaps, because this has been going on now for a long time, right? Perhaps you should move, uh, get Mm -hmm. away. And his position was at the time, and you know what, I can move. And I could be walking down the street in my new place, and if she wants to kill me, she'll kill me. My family's here, my friends are here, my practice is here, so I'm staying here. That was his Correct. position. That Correct. was his position. And that, you know, that's what she was doing was terrorism. Terrorism, yes, that's what you would call now terrorism. I, I mean, you know, that that is what it was. Um, the the vandalism we talked about the the Boston cream pie. Mm-hmm. And, of course, again, she doesn't see cause and effect. You smear Boston cream pie, your husband files for divorce. Right, and that was in the you beginning. You crash and, his house. But that, and that's years your later. Husband <laughs> that's still going on years a, later. Well, apparently not long after the cream pie and the divorce being filed, she went over there. I think the boys were supposed to be at a soccer game, and Dan had taken them to get their hair cut because he didn't know about the soccer game, probably because Danny and Rex got to tell him. Mm -hmm. And um, she came by the house looking for them, and nobody was home, so she breaks the window and comes in the house and spray paints the walls. This was Coral Reef's house right after the divorce was filed. Yeah, see, that was early on. You yeah. you do that, and the police can't do anything because her name was on the house. On the house, yeah. But he he got a you know stay away order or mm-hmm. protection. Yes, which would or be restraining order. Very very appropriate given that situation. There is exactly. a judge around that wouldn't. There's uh, there wouldn't be an attorney around that wouldn't advise their client to do that. Right. And there wouldn't and be a judge around that yeah. wouldn't grant it. Yes. Yeah. And and that's like I said, that's not that's not an attack on Betty. It is no. a response to Betty's attack on him. Correct. Yes. But once and, again, um, given her mental illness, because I think she's mentally ill, and she has a personality disorder, as you say, you're never going to be able to um, expect that person to stay not, in the and, and some of Yeah, and some of her supporters can't see it that way either. They don't see the cause and effect. She says it's a... Dan did this, so I did that, and it's more mm-hmm. you did this, so Dan did this. Right. <laughs> and it's it's not really – I don't think she's mentally ill. A personality so? disorder is not a mental – a personality oh. disorder is not a mental illness. That's true. Personality I, disorders generally do not respond to treatment, medication, no treatment. or anything. No. no, there is no treatment. So, and if you get a divorce case – with someone who has a personality disorder on the other side, it is a wild ride. They do not Correct. operate with the, in the same bounds as everybody else. They do not follow logic. It's very, mm-hmm. very difficult. So people who are in a marriage with somebody like that who finally need to get away have a very Correct. tough time, very tough time. Exactly. Bez but is as the, the uh, extreme. As Park Dietz testified in the second trial, she is in control. Even today, she is in control. She could have stopped this at any time. 
Oh, but she didn't want to. No, no. And she doesn't have any remorse, from what I understand. I've no. not gone no. to any she of the parole hearings. But she, yeah. she continues to blame. It was them attacking me. That letter was like a baseball bat to the head. Um, it was a letter from your from Dan's, Dan's attorney. attorney to your yeah. attorney. It wasn't even directed at you or to you, but you were copied on it by your attorney. Which is appropriate. Yeah. Probably because your attorney was hoping that you would, you know, read it and say, okay, I'm going to start behaving myself. And saying Dan was trying to control her is, you know, of course he's trying, you know, you're trashing his house, woman. Well, he's trying. Of course, to, he's going to want you to stop, and he has every right to right. want well, you to and, stop. And, and mostly, what he wanted was for her to be okay for the kids. At that mm-hmm. point, we're talking 1989, uh, towards the end of 1989. So I forget what year they filed for divorce. What year did they file for divorce? Uh, he filed for divorce. The separation was in 1985. He filed, oh, yeah. I think, in September of 85. Yeah. So they had been, you know, that's four years. I mean, most divorces end up lasting about a year, uh, maybe mm-hmm. a year and a half. And then those that go on beyond that, there's usually either a a reason that everybody's agreed to to make it or it's a, tr- it's a difficult divorce. And if you have one Correct. that's going on for four, four years, you are really in a very difficult divorce. Correct. And it, it was very difficult, again, because... She was driving attorneys away. Yes. yes. She was violating orders, restraining orders. Mm-hmm. She was uh, just not showing up for hearings after being served. Yes, she was making it difficult. She was, and she was making it Of course, it, it was all Dan's fault. Yeah. And then it became uh, uh, Dan's fault because he wanted to take advantage of Epstein credit. Could you explain Epstein credit for listeners? Sure, I'd be happy to. So when people separate, um, so they separated in 1985. From then on, any income that Dan made or any income that Betty would have made would be their separate property. It wouldn't be community income. And to the extent Mm -hmm. that Dan used his separate property income to pay community obligations, then he has a right to ask the court to have Betty reimburse him 50% of what he paid because he used his separate property to pay a community debt. So those are what, that's what's, what are Epstein credits, and those are discretionary mm-hmm. with the court to order it. And so everyone, in every case I have uh, in 30-something years, if, if my client or the other side continues to pay a community debt after separation, a community debt that um, that person is not directly benefiting from. Like if Dan had a car payment from a car he had during the marriage and he continued mm-hmm. to make the car payment after, after separation with his separate property, he wouldn't get Epstein credits for that because he was using the car. But if there were right. bills that they owed and uh, things like that, then he could ask for Epstein credits. And in, some, in most cases... He would get it. It's not for sure. You have to ask the court. Right. So he asked the court. That right. was perfectly appropriate. And and in an ideal situation, each side has their own accountant 
to figure out what the Epstein credit should be. Depending on how complicated it is. I mean, frequently, if it's not... Yeah, if it's not real complicated, right. the lawyers it, do it. If it's a two hundred dollar, if it's a two hundred dollar bank account and a credit card, yeah, it's and not going to be complicated. a mortgage. It's it's simple, but if it's you know prop, rental properties and investments, all kind, all kinds of things. Then, then you know, the more law complicated, and, yeah, the more complicated it gets, then you have forensic CPAs. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, but again, Betty, you know, being Betty, um, she thought that her flapping gums could counteract whatever Dan presented, just saying, no, 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 that's not right. (laughs) Yeah. So it was a long trial. I forget how many days it was. It was a couple days. Yeah, Uh, yeah, January of 89. But she, you know, the other thing that she does that if I ever meet her, I'm I'm probably going to end up smacking her. Well. She does this. Oh, I'm so. Oh, I'm so helpless. Oh, I'm so. You know, I'm so. I don't know what I'm doing. Well, then you shouldn't be doing it. <laughs> right. My recollection of what Dan said is that you know she actually did a fairly decent job when she was putting on the case for herself. Mm-hmm. I mean, Betty was. It's a smart she, woman. She's. She's not. She not, did, but she, like I said, her skewed perception. Well, and you know she had to be told. She kept trying to ask about the affair and get the affair on the record, right. but the judge was like, it's no fault. Right. That's not relevant. Yes. And then she would keep trying to sneak back to it. Yeah. Um, again, skewed perception. Mm-hmm. So, well, she was, um, remember the word scorned? Um, mm-hmm. To me, that perfectly sums up how Betty felt. She felt scorned, and so she was out for revenge. Correct. And, you know, I mean, you know, when you look at it, you know, are you going to stay with a woman who calls you fuckface? <laughs> no. She probably called him while they were married. Oh, they, she or are you going to stay with a woman I, no. that actually likes you and calls you the boy? Um, she, she And actually likes things. you. Loves you. <laughs> Let's say Linda loves you. Well, lo- loves you, yeah. But I think and likes, even and likes. at first it was then, like. Yes. But, you know, Betty didn't like him, didn't love him, and, you know, he was was a means to an end. Mm -hmm. He was a cash machine because I also, I can't confirm it, but apparently uh, when they started making money, Betty started spending it as fast as Stan made it. I don't know the answer to that, so. And so they weren't going to have, they weren't going to stay liquid for very long. With the way Betty was spending money, I don't. I and never that was got a source of. That was a source because it doesn't sound like Dan was. I mean, he wanted nice things, but he didn't need ten of everything in every no. color. He I, would I have one nice, you know, one nice piece of furniture, and and Betty would want, you know, three. Yeah. Um, I. I that may be the case. I don't. I have no idea. I didn't ever get involved he, in their finances. He was probably intensely private as well. He is, or he was, I should say. Yes. So, um, we would talk um, about her actions and what was happening with the children. We would. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I knew what he was paying her at the time. I didn't necessarily remember it right now, but I remember at the time that it was very. Um, it was very. Gen- I mean, it was not generous. I don't want me to put it that way. It was. It was. I'm sure very appropriate given what Dan was making. 
and it was a lot. For, it was a lot, and so she was not Correct. hurting. Uh, there was no right. She was not suffering. She lived in a beautiful home at the end, and overlooking the you know the cove in San Diego. She was in La Jolla, um, very nice house. Yeah. Um, so she was she was fine. Well, now she money. was apparently she. Well, I, she her budgeting issues. She was having problems. Well, Once that went to her name and the mortgage was in her name, she started having problems paying for it. Oh, too bad. So she probably so needed somebody she was to teach her how to manage her money for a condo, know. right? And she, you know, she, and really considering the way they started off, she knew how to manage money. Give me a break. Uh, because when they started off with Dan in law school, medical school and law school, her working to support the family, she knew how to budget. She knew how to manage money. Well, she probably just didn't want to bother. <laughs> right, no, exactly. She didn't want to bother, and she felt that she it's her sense of entitlement, I think, that really well, chaps maybe my she, butt. It probably was probably <laughs> just that she's a very narcissistic person. So, yeah, um, yes. another way of, uh, of saying entitled. Yeah, she's a very narcissistic yes. person. Which is unfortunate because now yeah. she's got four children who have grandchildren and they don't really have access to either parent, and that's really mm-hmm. that's really a tragedy. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Because they're wonderful. I haven't seen them in a long time, uh, any of them. But when I did know them, um, they're lovely. They're lovely people, and you know, this would have been it would have been wonderful for them to have. Uh, Dan and Linda have had available. both parents and yeah, yes. and yeah, Betty too. Dan, Betty Linda, and Betty. Betty and yeah. Betty. If she had found somebody else, I mean, what a different story, right? And that would have been very good. Mm-hmm. Correct. Oh, it's too bad. But unfortunately, the the um, the uh, somebody had she she felt she was losing skewed perception again. She felt she was losing, even though there was no winning or losing. No. No, there was I mean, no winning. you know, it was going, you're going your separate ways. It that's, that's what happens. And when you're unhappy, my parents stayed together for the children. Oh. And I, I, I told my parents as an adult, that's probably one of the worst things you ever did. Because I don't do successful relationships mm-hmm. because I didn't have a model. Mm-hmm. Now yeah. my sister, my, my middle sister's in a 30 plus year marriage. Good for her. But I think sometimes that they just, neither one of them wants to be bothered with divorce. Well, <laughs> don't you think that relationships go up and down? And so sometimes. Yeah. They and they do, yeah. they, they yeah. do, they go up and down and, and, and they they've weathered the ups and downs and and uh, I'm I'm teasing there there. Well, at this point, it's good that they stay together. Tell them you heard it from me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, and um, they uh, we actually grew up in the same neighborhood. And when I first heard that she was dating my brother-in-law, I was like, I never knew she liked him because <laughs> we all used to hang out all the time. Oh. So, um, and then my youngest sister's never even been married. I'm divorced. 
one. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, like in, I will say this: I will allow any person going through a divorce one rash, destructive act to vent pain, frustration, and anger. And Betty had that when she burned Dan's clothes. Yeah. And that was her limit. Everything after that was just, to me, totally unacceptable. The messages were horrible, totally unacceptable, especially the fact that they were on the answering machine Mm -hmm. for her kid's phone. Yes. And, you know, were because she couldn't get in touch with the children when she wanted to get in touch with the children. And, you know, this is not, I mean, children are not, um, they're not going to be at the, either parent's beck and call. I mean, they have their own life, and it's mm-hmm. very hard to get them to say, okay, now you have to be on the phone at this time, and you always have to be, in, you know, available. It just, that gets hard for poor kids. Yeah, divorce is hard on children, right. so people should really try their best to um, to stay together, really. Right, and and don't use the kids' weapons, and that was what Betty did. Yes, she did. She yes, she, she did. used them as weapons, and people accuse Dan of doing it too, but I I just I've never seen that. Um, no, I don't think he used them as weapons at all. I think he was very mindful and was trying to make the right decisions on what to do with the kids, and right. they were as protected as possible. So. And so, and and again, I I don't think Dan or Linda ever did anything overt directly to Betty. No, I'm not aware. I of think them they either. reacted when Betty did things to them, but they did not go out and you know they didn't go trash Betty's house. No, no, no. She trashed Dan's house. Dan didn't go over to her house and trash it to get even with her, and you know he went through the courts. Uh, when she when Betty stole Linda's wedding list after coming into the Marston Hills house where she had no business of being, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Linda went to her house to look for the list. Linda did not trash her house. No. She did not damage or destroy anything. No. And then she realized that she had done the wrong thing and went back to return the journal or whatever it was that she took for Dan to see. And, I mean, that demonstrates, you know, she didn't want to, she didn't want to hurt Betty. Nobody needed to hurt Betty. Betty was hurting herself. They wanted Betty to leave them alone. Right. And And they had every right. And when someone is that. constantly, and when you say, I mean, you know, we're talking about it, and um, for the listener to understand, it was constant. It was almost daily, I mean, for four mm-hmm. years. So right. it wasn't, you know, like this month this thing happened, and then the, maybe the next month or two months later something happened. No, it was, right. it was constant. It was a constant I mean, I, barrage. I, I think there were a few times of like 20 messages a day. It could be as high as that, yes. And and Dan instituting the fine system again. He had, you know, he wanted her to stop. He was hoping hitting her in the pocketbook, pocketbook, yes, would make her, you know, her. Yes, realize fining her for 
the language that she was using or how often that that might the might come on his it property yeah and things like that and that of course didn't didn't work no. but again you know i see that he had every right to do that to try and curb her behavior and saying oh, right. he wanted to control her no well yeah he did want to control her to he wanted her to, to get her to control herself well he wanted to stop I think the that's bad more behavior accurate. the stop the yeah. bad behavior yeah it wasn't he wanted he was her trying to, to tell her where herself. she had to live or what who she could see or how she had to dress or what right. she had to eat. It was just to stop the bad behavior. Exactly. Yeah. So and, and unfortunately their their divorce uh was finalized. I think the divorce was actually granted in eighty seven could be that sounds about right or because so. they got married in eighty nine, and they did not get married right away. They waited quite a while before they got married. They got and, married in April of eighty nine. Right, there was no financial settlement and no custody settlement. And that sometimes and, happens in a case where things are not resolved, and it's been going correct. on for quite a while, and so it's called a bifurcation of the marital yeah. status, and that's a very common and, practice. And, of course, Betty didn't appear at the hearing, didn't have an attorney appear on her behalf, and didn't really have anything or anyone there to uh, assert her interests. And that's why it happened, not because of any legal maneuvering by Dan. It's because basically Betty was a horrible strategist. Well, the the court would have (laughs) – even if she'd had an attorney there – uh, the court mm-hmm. would have granted the bifurcation. The court will not. The grant. The court will always grant a bifurcation of the marital status, and after any time after six months, mm-hmm. when there isn't some good reason, and I had, and I've only had it happen twice in 32 years where I've stopped a bifurcation, and it had to do with mm-hmm. insurance. Uh, but if there's yeah. not a, a very good reason, the court's always going to grant a bifurcation because after six months, you're entitled to be divorced, mm-hmm. and then everything else continues along uh, with the court's jurisdiction, and so it's not a problem. So the, even if she'd had a lawyer, it would have been granted. Most people just right. stipulate um, that when one person says, hey, I, it's been six months, I want to do this, they'll, the attorneys will, will talk, and then they'll put a stipulation together bifurcating. I, I, there's one in my office mm-hmm. right now that I just signed. So that happens yeah. all the time. But again, it's you know Betty portrays it as something unusual, Mm-mm. and you know some something dance legal maneuvering. The judge was <laughs> no. in his pocket. All yeah, those no. things. No, no, it's, no. it's matter more of course. Or less, it's matter of you course. Weren't, particularly and, and you after weren't two there. Years. So if there was some reason not to do it, you weren't there to assert that reason or prove yeah, that and I, reason. And there wouldn't have been in their case. There would not no. have been. So. Okay. So, um, and so then they reached their financial settlement in 19, I think early 1989. And then Dan and Linda got married in April of 89. And Dan and Linda got married in April. And mm-hmm. in the financial settlement, unfortunately for Betty, the Epstein credits were quite high. But again, mm-hmm. she did not have anyone advocating on her behalf. Well, the reason that they probably got as high as they did is because the divorce lasted, the process lasted so long. Mm-hmm. Had they been divorced, uh, let's say they would have settled financially within a year. 
those debts mm-hmm. would have been assigned to different to one or the other. And then all, that right. would, yeah, and then that person would have been re- solely responsible, and there wouldn't have been any right to a reimbursement. But because it all went on for so long, and Dan kept Correct. floating the the community, then he had a right to be reimbursed. Right. And you know, again, that poor strategy. And I think Betty, you know, she proposed uh, a settlement. And but I think if Dan had said, "Sure, I'll 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 give you that." <laughs> Uh-huh. She would have said that's not enough now. And then, then she would have done something else, yes. And then she would have wanted twice as much, because that's what she did with Coral Reef. Yeah. You know, that, she agreed not- to something, and then she wanted three times more. Yeah, that's not surprising. And so, you know, and again, I, I the, the sad thing is she could have gone and made her own money herself, and been just as successful because she was very driven, very intelligent. But and she had friends. I I don't think she wanted to do that. She wanted somebody to take care of her for the rest of her life, and it was going to be Dan, whether he liked it or not. Well, that's what she thought. I yeah. mean, that's that's what it that's what it comes down to. And damn it, if she wants it, she gets it. She thinks. Yeah. Um. So. Um, so, Michael, are you here? You want to take a break real quick? We yeah, usually I'm take here. a break about this podcast. Okay. We can take a break. You want to do that real quick? All right, cool. Yeah. We'll be back. Of course, we're going to take a break. Oh. <laughs> uh, what time does gonna... the podcast end? Oh, 10 p.m. We're on till 10? Yes, ma'am. It's two oh. hours, but if you're not available, if you would like, to, I, I mean, I'd love to have you stay because this I has only been thought, great. I apologize. I thought it only lasted for an hour. For some reason, I'm misunderstood. Oh. I apologize. I'm sorry. Oh no, I, I didn't know that. I have people coming over here to do something in about because it's only seven o'clock where I am, so they're coming over yes, for ma'am. dinner in about fifteen minutes. <laughs> Oh no, no. Of course, if you need to go, that's fine. We don't, we don't demand a commitment for two hours. Well, I apologize for I, I just didn't understand. It was that's two hours. That's quite all right. That's okay. quite all right. Well, is there any question you want me to answer before I hang up? Because I'm happy to do that. But no, man. I, I think, think now I, I, we're getting into the we're getting into the criminal case anyway oh. now. Okay. And well, you provided so much, you know, great background of the divorce and okay. the process and, and, and Linda and Dan. Okay. Well, that, um, I, I just hope that everybody knows that's listening that they were wonderful people and none of this should have happened to, uh, to them or the children. So, But thank you for yeah. giving me this opportunity to speak on their behalf. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, and if you're, if you're coming to New Orleans, go I to am Lafayette. over Thanksgiving. Yes, I am over Thanksgiving to spread my mom's Please ashes. Please reach out actually. to me. I'd love to meet you for okay. coffee. Oh, I will. I will do so. All righty. Thank you. All right. Good night. Thank Bye-bye. you. Good night. Bye. Well, Lisa, do you still want to take a break real quick and come back? And I guess we'll we'll pick up with the uh, we'll, we'll trial. We'll go into the meat and taters. Yeah, we'll take a break, and then we'll go into the meat and daters. Okay, sounds good. Well, we'll be right back with more clear and convincing after this.
So here for too long, our commercial breaks are going to be a little bit longer, but, you know, it's a oh, working that's, that's okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm always uh, singing along with the song. One of these days, we're going to come back, and I'm going to be still singing Right Place, Wrong Time. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Oh, Lord. That would be that would be an epic moment in the history of our uh, podcast here. Little show. Well, yeah, but we've we've got we've got some better ones. Right, right. We do but like we, the, the minutes of total silence in the first few episodes. <laughs> hey, you got to work through that awkward stage. <laughs> All so, right. So now we're at the meat and taters. Yeah, unless I'm mistaken, we're pretty much, are we at the uh, trial? Well, this is the murder of Dan and Linda. I, in talking to Sharon, um, I, I'm a little relieved. She was great, but I don't know if she would have wanted to talk about the, you know, right, these, these murders themselves that. and all those. I think that might have been a little bit more. And going over the trial, there were actually two trials which I did not indicate on our outline because I was rushing to get it done. Well, no, I was actually doing my actual job. Well, we have actual <laughs> jobs. What? Huh? Yeah, I know. 
I have to I have to do my actual job sometimes. Um, yeah, this is uh, Dan and Linda's murder. Uh, it occurred on November 5th, 1989. Betty had stolen keys from her daughter, Kim. And among right. those keys was the key to Dan and Linda's house. Mm-hmm. And she, of course, at that point, Dan had decided to go ahead and let Betty take custody, at least temporarily, of the two younger boys, Danny, who was, I believe, 13 or 14, and Rhett, who was about 11. And the there were some conditions. Uh, she was not to enter his property. She was not to violate the restraining order. She was not to leave the messages, which, again, are entirely reasonable conditions to be placed upon her temporary custody of the children. Right. Uh, probably right. more likely than not at the request or guidance of psychologists who had examined the boys. Um, Mm -hmm. Betty bought the gun shortly after Dan and Linda became engaged. And during the months leading up to the murders, uh, Danny and Rick a couple of times tried to take the gun and hide it from their mother because she was constantly threatening to kill Dan and Linda with it. So, um, uh, she, you know, she voiced it many, many times. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. Uh, she claims that the letter was a threat to her, that it frightened her. But I think that's a skewed perception from her personality disorders, uh, rather than, because I've read the, I found the letters and I read them and they're not, you know, they're nothing to be upset about. Right. Uh, there aren't a lot of documents available online. And so there's no, her direct appeal, which was denied, was not published. Mm-hmm. And so I I don't know what the direct appeal, I don't know what issues she appealed, although I can guess. Um, but none of none of her court, any nothing from an appellate court is is published. California's like that. They don't publish right. a lot of stuff. So um she it was November fifth, uh five thirty in the morning. She got in the car, she drove over to Dan and Linda's house, she claimed she was gonna go to the beach and commit suicide. And then she decided she needed to go to Dan and Linda's house and use the gun to make them listen to her so that they could talk about this custody thing, which is more BS. Because you don't go over to somebody's house at 530 in the morning, uninvited and unannounced, with a key you stole from your daughter to get into the house while people are asleep. Oh, absolutely. It makes no sense. And absolutely. she, 
maybe in some ways wasn't thinking clearly, but I think she was thinking very clearly. And she went up to the master bedroom. Dan and Linda were in bed asleep, and she just opened fire. It was a revolver. I think it was a thirty-eight. Five shots. She hit Linda in the chest, hit Dan in the back, and the bullet uh, punctured his lung. And then she fired a final time and struck Linda in the back of the head. Well, damn. Or in the neck, and it it struck her in the head. Uh, Dan had fallen off the bed and was reaching for the phone. Linda was killed instantly. Dan was Mm -hmm. not killed instantly. He was reaching for the phone. Betty went into the room, got the phone, yanked the cord out of the wall, and then carried the phone into the hallway and dumped it on the floor. So Dan, who was still alive at that time, although likely mortally wounded, she took away the only way he could have called for help and potentially saved himself and left the house. Okay. How quickly Uh, afterwards was she uh, apprehended? She turned herself in that afternoon sometime. This was a Sunday morning, early, early Sunday morning. She called her, she called a couple of people. She called her father but did not tell him about killing Dan and Linda. She called a friend of hers and told her friend that she'd killed Dan and Linda. And she also called her daughter and told one of her daughters that she'd shot Dan and Linda. Uh, Her friend called Betty's house and spoke with Brad Wright, who was Betty's boyfriend. And Brad and a friend of Dan and Linda's went to Dan's house and found Dan and Linda and then called police and the investigation began. Uh, But she got an attorney and turned herself in at the police station that night, that afternoon. I think it was around 4 o'clock in the afternoon or so. Um, Right. She was charged with first-degree murder, two counts. The uh, district attorney's office, the district attorney prosecuting the case was a lady by the name of Carrie Wells. And I would love to have interviewed her, but she's had enough of Betty Broderick. I don't think I don't think that she would be interested in a little little old podcast. Um, right. And she elected uh, the DA elected not to pursue the death penalty because they knew Betty's daughters would end up testifying at the trial, and possibly her sons would have to testify, and they did not want the children to be subjected to being a part of sending their mother to death row. I can see their point, so you know. They they elected not to pursue the death penalty, even though what she did was first-degree murder. Right, and absolutely. We'll that, I mean, that, was cool. that was the absolute definition of uh, first-degree murder. So uh, yeah. basically the prosecution's case, I'm assuming, revolved around everything that happened, you know, uh, since they separated. Um, Correct. Uh, you know, the, all the, yeah, the messages divorce, and everything. The vandalism, the, the 
repeated threats, repeated threats. I mean, you know, there there was a threat. Um, she called. Apparently, she had the boys, and she didn't want them anymore, and she wanted Dan to come get them, and she got his answering machine. And after leaving the message about, I hate your neighborhood, I don't want to drive to your neighborhood, uh, I'm going to kill you. And then hangs up the phone. And if you, if, you, if you go on YouTube and watch some of the videos, she has this annoying high-pitched voice mm-hmm. that perhaps is initially pleasant, but after a while it starts to grate. It's this high-pitched little girl voice. And it becomes very grating. And I'm sure those messages, it became very grating. And a lot of the messages, she called her husband, who she said she loved so much and wanted to stay married to, she called him fuckface. And many other things. But that one's the most, you know, the most glaring. And then she called Linda, his girlfriend, who, whether he had an affair with her or, or before the marriage ended or not, it, it really doesn't matter. Men have affairs. You have one rash, destructive act, and then you should get over it. Right, absolutely, especially if you say you want to uh, patch things up, you should definitely, like, forgive well, yeah, completely if you want to stay with the husband. If you want to stay with the husband, instead of being critical and calling him names and being ugly, you should start trying to be nice and sweet and, you know, accommodating. And then, but, you know, if you continue calling him fuckface, he ain't going to want to be married to you no more. I mean, he's done with you. And then he, she called the Linda uh, the C-word all the time, which that's one I won't say. Um. And if you don't know what it is, uh, I, I don't. Uh, I feel you know you're lucky. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what the C word is? Yes, yes, absolutely, okay, absolutely. Okay. We're not going to spell okay. that one out. <laughs> and anybody in the audience that doesn't know, oh well. <laughs> so <laughs> how in the world? <laughs> I mean, I've had some head scratchers before, but how in the world can there be a defense case? I mean, she has to be pleading well, and saying it the, at this point or something. Her attorney, her criminal attorney, Jack Early, essentially what he did is he put Dan and Linda on trial. Uh, Betty was of the generation, which is my mother's generation, where you married a man and you took care of the house and you raised the children and he brought home the bacon and, uh, you know, you, in in a way, you kind of, you did lose your identity to become Mrs. Whomever. But Betty had a college degree. She had worked as a teacher. While Dan was in school, medical school and law school, she had worked at different various jobs to uh try to to earn money to you know keep the family's head a little bit above water um so she had a lot of life experience she had been very sheltered as a child 
and a young woman mm-hmm. being from a good Italian Catholic family. Her mother was Irish, which I think is one of the things that's probably, you know, really wrong with Betty is that she's part Irish and part Italian. And that is a volatile combination. Absolutely. That is one of the worst combinations. (laughs) So, um, so their their strategy was putting Dan and Linda on trial. And, of course, like I said, Betty's the only one alive to tell the tale. And with her skewed perception, she was the perfect housewife. She was the perfect mother. She, you know, was the perfect wife. She did everything for Dan, and he was abusive and controlling and an alcoholic and you know, an ogre under a bridge, and she was better than he was, and um, he destroyed everything when he had an affair with with a, you know, secretary, although I think she was more like a paralegal. Um, She wasn't a secretary, and, or a legal assistant, which is kind of the same thing, and um, she... You know, she was the victim, and Dan and Linda were the people that drove her crazy and drove her to do this. Um, And it was all just, it's all Betty's personality disorder, that narcissistic personality, that uh, narcissists do not handle rejection. And they become very vengeful when they are rejected. Um, So that was what they did. It did end in a hung jury in the first trial. Ten of the jurors were ready to vote first-degree murder, but there were two jurors who held out for manslaughter. Why? And after several days of deliberation, they... Uh, could not reach verdict, and they went, told the judge, and the judge just declared a mistrial. I, I think hold that on, hold the, on, hold on, time out. I don't understand where you get uh, manslaughter from. Well, because they believed she didn't go over there with the intent to kill them. They believed her when she said, I went over there to get them to talk to me. I went over there because of all the horrible things they've been doing to me for all these years. They believed her. They found her to be credible. And, of course, they had they did have an expert who testified at the first trial about domestic violence and domestic abuse. And they believed that Betty had been abused, which is total BS. If anybody was abused in that marriage, it was Dan. Because it was Betty that would get angry and throw things at Dan. It was Betty that lashed out violently several times during the course of the separation and divorce. It was Betty who was constantly threatening to kill Dan. But, you know, some of those things the jury didn't hear about. Because it would have prejudice them against Betty. 
and Betty's the one with all the rights at the criminal trial. Mm-hmm. So uh, the second trial, the prosecution was a little bit more proactive. Uh, they did some one of the advantages of having a mistrial is that each side knows what the other is going to do. And so if something bad came in during the first trial, one side or the other can keep try and keep that out. And what the prosecution did is they were able to limit the defense expert on domestic violence. They were able to limit his testimony so much that he wouldn't testify. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you have to think about it. He had never examined – I don't think he ever examined Betty. He was going by her journals and um, interviewing friends and things of what Betty had told them. But he didn't try and even talk to or interview or obtain any information from Dan's family or from Linda's family. Mm-hmm. So uh, – you know, a lot of, he, he wasn't really, he didn't have a complete picture. And so his, you know, his testimony wasn't really going to help the jurors. They can hear Betty's testimony. Betty testified at both trials. They can hear her testimony and decide for themselves. They don't need an expert to tell them she was, you know, a victim of domestic violence. And so that, uh, was one way, and then in the second trial, uh, Carrie Wells was much more aggressive when she cross-examined Betty. And that's and what I managed to that, get the conviction? Yes, and I, I think that cross-examination, because it actually, the cross-examination is what made Betty's story fall apart. Because she she began to seem furious and uh, flip when she testified, and so I think that hurt her credibility with the jurors a lot. They still did have an issue when they were deliberating. The uh, I think again ten of the jurors wanted first degree murder, but there were one or two jurors who were holding out for manslaughter. Because, again, mm-hmm. they believed Betty when she said, I didn't go over there intending to kill him. Now, I don't believe that because she stole the keys from her daughter that would get her into the house. And I don't believe that because she went at 5.30 in the morning when Dan and Linda would be sleeping, not at 10 or 11 or 1 in the afternoon, when they were likely to be up and out and about. Which tells me she wanted to get them in their most vulnerable, when they were in their most vulnerable position. And I think that what drove, what led her to do it, she wasn't driven to do it. What led her to finally do it was that if she got custody of the boys, she had nothing to harass Dan about anymore. She had her financial settlement. She wasn't happy with it, 
but it, that part was over. If she got custody of Danny and Rhett, there's nothing else for her to harass. There's no reason for her to continue harassing Dan or Linda. And right. so the second jury, uh, they, they went over everything again, and one of the tapes that was played was a conversation between Danny and Betty where Danny was reduced to tears. And Danny, one of the things Danny kept saying is, you know, all you care about is your money. If you would stop saying bad words and stop worrying about Dan and Linda, we could come live with you. And she basically turned around and attacked Danny. You know, that you're taking your father's side, you're a traitor. And so that was... uh, kind of the linchpin of the case. And the jurors came to a compromise of second-degree murder. Okay. So basically, they they first-degree murder requires premeditation. Mm-hmm. And second-degree murder doesn't require premeditation. Okay. And I that think makes- just for some of those jurors they did not see the keys and the timing to be indicators of premeditation as I would see them or you might see them or someone or, or the, the other 10 jurors saw them and the 10 in the first trial. So, and we'll be talking about premeditation deliberation next week. So we'll, we'll go through We'll do another general show next week. Okay. And go through that. Okay. So what happened on direct appeal? It was obviously denied because Betty's still in prison. Um, right. I don't know what issues because, again, California didn't uh, doesn't publish a lot of opinions. I might reach out to Sharon and see if she has access to any appellate opinions for Betty. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't. I don't know. I might. I might bring that up if if she and I have coffee in New Orleans. I might pass that by because um, I would love to read the direct appeal and any post conviction opinions I can get my hands on. Uh, but I, I don't know what they would have. Um, they probably would have appealed the sufficiency of the evidence for second degree murder. Mm-hmm because Betty always denied any intent to kill Dan or Linda. And Betty claimed that the gun fired when Linda said, call the police. Of course, at the first trial, she said Linda, Linda moved and the gun fired. So her testimony changed between trial one and trial two, and that didn't help her. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they probably also appealed the limitations on their expert testimony of the domestic violence expert. Uh, those are the only those are the only two I can try and divine, based on some of Jack, uh, Jack Early's comments in the various uh, news articles that I read. And then state post conviction, I don't know whether she even filed any kind of state post-conviction. I can't really find any 
indication of it. Um, and I know she has not filed a federal habeas because I've looked on PACER. And she okay. has never filed a federal habeas claim at all. And her time to do so is long, long, long gone. She did file a state post-conviction after her parole denial in 2010. And so we'll talk about that after we talk about the 2010 parole hearing. Okay. Let's talk about the 98 clemency request. Uh, what happened there? Well, she... Um, she filed the request with the governor at that time. Uh, he did not act on it and left it to his successor. successor. Mm-hmm. And I, at this point, I knew the names yesterday, and I don't know them right now. <laughs> so, um, but obviously, she's still in prison 32 years to life because she was convicted of second-degree murder. And she was sentenced to consecutive sentences, which means she serves a sentence for Dan's murder, and then she has to serve a sentence for Linda's murder, or vice versa. Usually sentences run concurrently, so Mm -hmm. you have three sentences, but they all run at the same time, so when you would become eligible, eligible for parole on any one is when you become eligible for parole. That's not a guarantee they're going to get parole, but um, she applied for parole in 2010. Uh, Portions of the hearing are available on YouTube. Uh, You might want to watch them. She basically gives her same skewed perception of everything and denies any intent to kill Dan or Linda. She says she went there to talk to them, to make them listen to her with the gun, but had never had any intent to kill her, kill them. And um, the parole commissioners just buy that at all. Um, oh, she no, has absolutely. no remorse. She feels that, you know, she and Dan and Linda were all adults and they were all responsible for what happened. which infuriates me to no end because, again, her skewed perception, she can take something innocuous and turn it into a slight or an attack when that's not the intent of the person. In other words, you know, Dan Dan sending Danny and Rhett over with the wrong shirt would be a deliberate attempt to harm her when, in fact, it was just that he thought she said the blue shirts and she wanted the red shirts. And good old Betty moving the goalpost, she might tell Dan the blue shirts and then swear on a stack of Bibles that she told him red shirts. Because with somebody like that, you can't win. You're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. And Dan was damned if he talked to her, damned if he didn't, could never do anything right. None of her attorneys could ever do anything right. 
none of her attorneys were aggressive enough. None of her attorneys were going to clean Dan Broderick out and give everything to Betty Broderick for her 16 years of being married to the man. Frankly, I think if there were any emotional damages, Dan Broderick had them because he was the one that was frequently the target of ketchup bottles, stereo sets. She'd lock him out of the house. So he'd have to tap on his daughter's window and say, can you please let me in? Mm -hmm. She would get mad at him and not even tell him why. She'd say, you should know why. And, you know, and of course, if you listen to Betty, everybody's lying but Betty. Oh, of course. So that's clue one right there. And I'm sure everybody was out to get her and all those things. Correct. The the entire San Diego legal – in fact, the entire San Diego legal community is still aligned against her because she was denied parole twice. Um, So, yeah, they denied her parole in 2010 because she has no insight into her actions. She has no remorse. She's still blaming the victims. And, you know, really, she poses a a threat because if somebody unknowingly crosses her, Mm -hmm. she will make them the target of her vengeful, uh, you know, her vengeful side. And then all bets are off. And, you know, there there have been her daughter Kim testified. Uh, apparently, they have some kind of relationship now. But at one time, you know, she was calling Kim a traitor because Kim testified and told the truth and refuted Betty's claims of a perfect marriage because it was not by any stretch of the imagination a perfect marriage. And so her post conviction. Uh, claim after her denial of parole was uh, denied. Okay. They found no, you know, the board didn't do anything wrong and um, that everything, the evidence relied on by the board to deny parole was all above board and she wasn't entitled to parole. Okay, okay, and that brings us to 2017, correct? Correct. Uh, That parole hearing is not available online, but I think it was kind of pretty much the same as 2010. Um, She does not take responsibility. She does not say, I was wrong. I, I, you know, I saw this as something that it never was, and I acted horribly. I mean, she even at one point claimed she'd never been violent in her life to the parole board. And she had once driven a vehicle through Dan's front door. That's violent. Mm -hmm. She had a butcher knife under the seat and tried to grab it to stab him with it when he pulled her out of her car. Because she was backing up to try and hit the door again. And, you know, she lies and she says, I didn't cause any damage to that door. 
you know, I could not believe it when he submitted the bill. I didn't damage the door. That there are photographs of the door literally hanging off the, you know, the hinges. Apparently, she caused such severe damage that it, it damaged the alarm system in the house. Damn. Uh, and this was probably about 1986 when this happened. Because she got right. angry when she refused to cooperate with the sale of their... When they separated, they were out of the marital home in a rental because the marital home had a foundation crack. When they separated, Dan moved back into the marital home. And then at some point, Betty, a a really beautiful house in La Jolla to get her out of the Mm -hmm. rental home. He was staying in the marital home. She vandalized that a couple of times. And then uh, she was constantly going, you know, in the house whenever she wanted to. She was vandalizing it. Uh, The police were telling Dan, we can't do anything. Her name's on the deed. It's her house. She can do whatever she wants. So then he decided, okay, well, he was going to move to a house in which her name was no longer on a deed. And that's what he did. And he found the house in Marston Hills. And so he decided they needed to sell the Coral Reef house, which had been the marital house. And she wouldn't cooperate. And he went to the court and had the court approved the sale. And she got Mm -hmm. her half of the money, plus her attorney had worked out a great deal for her. So she was getting her half of the sale price plus between eighteen and forty thousand dollars on top of that. But to this day she makes it sound like he sold the house out from under and then that was never what happened. Mm Mhm. You know, um, and there was a hearing on the sale, and she didn't show up. Of course not. So that's, you know, it's not going to stop because you don't appear. Right, absolutely. You're um, going to lose. She she drives over to his house. First, she drives to the Coral Reef house, and she tries to set it on fire. But apparently that didn't work. And so then she goes to Dan's house. She wants to talk to him. Of course, he didn't want to talk to her. She's screaming, you know, having a tan. Betty reminds me of a spoiled brat throwing a temper tantrum when she didn't get her way. Mm-hmm. And the really sad thing about it is that most of the people around Betty probably did not really even know what she wanted because Betty didn't know what she wanted. Right. Beyond Dan coming back and them resuming the life that she believed to have been perfect. (sighs) Let me roll my eyes. People are so entitled. So, and again, that's, you know, that's the narcissistic personality. Right. Um, So uh, two of her children, Kim and Danny, do not want to see her released. They do not believe that 
she has sufficient insight into what she did and the harm she caused. And they worry that, again, somebody could slight her and not even realize it and end up with their home vandalized, harassed, and dead. And they don't want to see that. The two, the younger daughter, uh, Lee, and the youngest son, Rhett, they both feel that she's served enough time, she's not a danger, they want her out of prison, they want to be able to spend time with her. She's 71 this year. She'll be 71 on November 7th. Okay. Yeah, I don't think she's very and they, dangerous anymore, but, they, you know. Well, no, but, I mean, I mean, you know, she went out and bought a gun. Right. A 71-year-old can fire a gun. And she was a marksman in high school. There you go. So uh, she fired five shots, three hit Dan and Linda, and two hit the wall behind the bed and the nightstand. Mm-hmm. And uh, she shot Linda in the chest and then either the neck or the back of the head. Uh, I think Dan falling off the bed kind of caused Linda's body to turn, and then the shot caused her body to kind of move over to Dan's side. And Dan fell on the floor. I mean, he was shot in the middle of the back. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't think, like I said, somebody could you know, not tell her good morning and and send her into a rage. And and that probably, you know, that gets worse as you get older. Especially the length of time she's been institutionalized. And she's, you know, she claimed a clean prison record, but when she was, being held for trial, that was not the case. She was written up multiple times because she's, you know, she's a narcissistic personality. She's always right and everybody else is wrong. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and like I said, everybody lies about her. She says, everybody lies about me. You know, Dan and Linda lied. Dan and Linda's families lied. The prosecutor lied. It's right, absolutely. Everybody lies just to get she, her. But that's the thing. She's not crazy. She is in control. The, de- the, the, the personality disorder does not control her. She controls it. And right. another, you know, another facet of narcissism narcissist especially is they can be very pleasing and very charming and seem incredibly normal and like they would not hurt a fly but if you cross them there's like a massive dark side that will unleash hell on you 
and you probably would not even realize what you did, and they won't tell you. You know, when you say, what did I do? I want to apologize. What did I do? You know what you did. Right. And if you don't know, I'm not going to tell you. So, uh, so that is the saga of uh, Dan and Linda Broderick. They just had the misfortune. Dan had the misfortune of marrying someone with a personality disorder who over time grew worse and worse until it became unbearable. And then in his efforts to separate from that, and safeguard his children, who, another problem with narcissists is they'll use anybody it takes to reach the goal that they want. If she wants to hurt Dan, she might have hurt the children. And you know, that's just I mean, out of... It, 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 it could have gone another way that night. She could have hurt Danny and Rhett rather than going to hurt Dan and Linda. Or hurt Danny and Rhett and then gone after Dan and Linda. So, um it, it's very lucky. Absolutely. Well Lisa, let's go ahead and wrap this thing up and let's go on and get on out of here. All right. <laughs> I want to thank everyone for joining us tonight for Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearingconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien LN. Join us next week for Episode 27, Premeditation slash Deliberation. Premeditation requires only that a person consider a criminal act prior to committing it. does not require a specific plan or a foolproof plan. Deliberation is the consideration of an act and its consequences prior to following through and committing the act. No specific time frame is necessary for either premeditation or deliberation, and those things can occur in minutes or seconds during the course of a crime. We hope to see you next week. Have a safe week, and have a great week. Stay safe. Bye.